podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the 1012, the podcast that covers all 10 teams in the Big 12 Conference. I'm your host, Philip Slade, and thank you for joining us on this Thursday. Man, we have a jam-packed show for you today. It just happened. It happened. I couldn't help it. It wasn't my intention, but here we are with a massive episode, and you've got all weekend to listen to most of it. And in fact, we kind of put it in the order of when do you need to listen? So we're kicking things off with Chase Kitty of the Highlander Pod to talk about betting odds in the Big 12 tournament. Who should you put your money down on to win? Who is a good bet? And, and an explanation of some of the numbers surrounding why you should bet one way or the other. Then Shehan Jayaraja of Dave Campbell's is going to join us to talk about the Cade Cunningham versus Jared Butler conversation. Cade winning the Big 12 Player of the Year from the Big 12. Jared winning it from the AP. And then, of course, you know we all know what's going on at Lawrence. Kansas firing less miles. And now we know that they have also fired Jeff Long. Now, look, we have a really good conversation with Andy Mitz and Parker Fleming about what to do to fix Kansas. Now, we recorded that interview on Wednesday, and literally 30 minutes after we stopped, Jeff Long was officially fired. The news doesn't really affect the conversation. The conversation is still what it is. It's how do you fix Kansas? It's not the three of us just listing off our potential candidates. We have a few names in mind, a couple you may not have heard of before, but it's a really, really good conversation about what do you do to make Kansas a not- complete dumpster fire of a college football program. Three great interviews. I've got all three of them for you. Before we get to them, a little bit of business. Hey, Texas Tech fans, did you know that Home Field Apparel now offers some of the best, most comfortable vintage Texas Tech apparel there is anywhere? There's literally a tortilla shirt. There's nothing more Texas Tech, Texas Tech football especially, than tossing tortillas. And they have a tortilla tosser t-shirt just for you. And I'm guessing for a lot of Texas Tech fans, if you haven't already bought some gear from them, you are planning to do so. And it's probably your first purchase from Homefield Apparel. So this is this is great. Right now, with the promo code 1012, you get 20% off your first order. All you gotta do, go pick a couple shirts. There's a Reckham, a couple guns up. There's a Reckham Texas Tech basketball shirt that I think is really awesome. There is the tortilla toss. I'm having a hard time picking out which one I'm gonna add to my Homefield apparel collection. I think you're going to have the same problem. You're going to need more than one. Luckily, 20% off your first order. Promo code 1012. All orders, $70 or more. Get free shipping. We all love Homefield. If you the first time you've been listening to this show, maybe you haven't heard of them, go to homefieldapparel.com. Find the most comfortable, most awesome, most awesome. Yes, that's terrible grammar, but it's an accurate description. Vintage college sports apparel with more than 100 schools available. Three from the Big 12 now with the addition of Texas Tech as well as Baylor and Iowa State. I think Homefield should be the official sponsors of the Butt Bowl. I mean, the B-U-T-T. I think it, I mean, it, it's going to happen. Go to homefieldapparel.com, promo code 1012, 20% off your first order, and be rocking the most comfortable, awesome college sports apparel today. All right. Chase Kitty, Big 12 tournament betting. Shehan Jayaraja. Cade Cunningham versus Jared Butler. Andy Mitz, Parker Fleming, How to Fix Kansas. We got a huge show. Hope you stick around for all of it. Let's get to it. 10, 12, Faithful, what is up? It is Ryan Chapman, Christine Butterfield. We are the Sideline Morning Podcast. And Christine, we have a huge announcement. Yes. We are now 
transitioning into more national news, which is super exciting, but don't worry, guys. Still going to be dunking on Ryan on the daily. Look, some things never change, but Season 2 of Sideline Morning is coming to you January 26th. You can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever. We are super excited to be a part of the Highball Network. And Christine, just can't wait to get back out there on January 26th. Back and better than ever, baby. All right, the Big 12 tournament is officially underway, but, you know, we got the first two games done, and a team has never won four games in four days to win the Big 12 tournament, so I feel confident in talking about Big 12 tournament championship odds and not worrying about Kansas State, who we now know has beaten TCU, and whoever wins the OU-Iowa State game that's about to tip off as we record this. So we are here to talk odds for the Big 12 tournament. Joining us today is our good friend Chase Kitty. Chase, welcome back to the show, man. Hey, Philip. What's going on? Uh, I got a really long episode, and I thought about splitting (laughs) it in two. And as we've joked about, I ran a Twitter poll to see what people wanted, and I got 16 votes and decided to 12 those 12 people. I will tell you the start cut times for each individual thing, and if you don't want to listen to something, you can skip because trying to make two episodes is twice as much work, and I'm not. I'm just not going to do that. I respect that power play from you. I'm going to put a poll in the field. I'm going to get the results, and I'm not going to care at all about the results. That is, <laughs> I respect that. Look, you. I get 500 people who are like we will listen to the show if you split it into two episodes. I'll go <laughs> done. Every one of you, you listen to both. But if I'm going to get 12, but there's a certain amount of, you know, yeah, that's that's not enough to sway my opinion. Uh, mm. As as we mentioned, the Big 12 tournament is underway, two games down. Um, let's talk about the, start things off with the tournament odds as to who's going to win. Um, and for those who don't do a lot of betting, which is me, I'm trying to learn more about it. Uh, I should, since I'm supposed to make picks every college football season. Um, I kind of want to talk about, just for those who may not know, explain what some of the numbers mean. So if we go off of the numbers I have found on Shark, which is, I believe, Bavada numbers, um, Baylor is a minus 140 to win the Big 12 tournament. So what does that mean if you place $100 down on Baylor? What does that mean at minus 140 if Baylor wins? Sure. So uh, when you're looking at American odds on money lines, which are plus 100 or minus 140 or something like that, uh, you're not looking at a point spread. You're looking at money lines. What that means is that for a minus number, which is only going to be Baylor for the Big 12 tournament, that generally means, especially with futures like this, where there's lots of teams to bet on, if you're a minus favorite, you're pretty you're pretty heavy favorite to win something. Uh, minus 140 means you need to you need to bet $140 to win $100. In other words, you are getting less than one to one payout. And on a future, that's a big deal. Now, on, on just like a, a regular college basketball game where there's a winner and a loser, you're going to have a favorite and an underdog. And that favorite might be a pretty heavy favorite depending on the game. But when you're looking at futures, because there's so many teams in play, and in this case, there's 10 teams in play, oftentimes even the most heavily favored team to win is still going to be at plus rated odds where you're getting more than one to one. So the fact that Baylor is at minus 140 to win, and I'm looking at a different book that has slightly, slightly different odds. I'm looking at minus 134. Either way, uh, that is a pretty significant indication uh, of what we already know, that Baylor is a heavy favorite to win this tournament. 
we should have compared odds before we started this, but you know, we eh. didn't learn. Um, so the, the numbers I'm looking at from Bavada, Baylor was, uh, is at 140, uh, Kansas at plus 350, West Virginia at plus 600, OSU at, and Texas at plus 800, uh, Texas Tech at plus 1500, OU at plus 1600, and then TCU doesn't matter, and I'm not even going to worry about Kansas State or Iowa State. Sorry. I don't, I'm at, tell you what, Kansas <laughs> State's plus 30,000, Iowa State is plus 50,000. So, you know, if you, look. Iowa State's won this thing before as a lower seed, so if, if you've got money to flush down the toilet, be my guest, sir. And it is flushing it down the toilet, I would just add there. At the it's, I mean, it's one thing to chase value, but Iowa State is not going to win this tournament. You know? no. it's, when, when you're chasing plus 50,000, that's, that's no longer a zone where you want to be looking for value. That's just wasting your time. If I put a dollar on that and they somehow won, does that, what does that mean? Uh, that I'll quit. That I'll stop doing this. <laughs> Just pack it up. I, I will stop hosting a gambling podcast. <laughs> okay. So looking at these odds, obviously Baylor at minus 140, and they are a dominant favorite. So it, it does feel to me, and I'm always curious, people say that, oh, that's those are good odds. Um, and I always get a little bit confused in that because I'm, sometimes I'm like, yeah, but they ha- they're not going to win. Like there's, it, it's, it's this weird conversation. I almost think it's hard of, and tell me if I'm wrong. Gambling becoming more commonplace, uh, people who, like myself, who don't follow gambling all the time, haven't been doing it for a long time, kind of maybe misunderstand some things about it. So like saying, oh, Texas at, at plus 800 is really good odds. I, I should, I should, you know, they, they could do this. Let me put some money, $100 down on Texas because that's good value if they were to win. But is that really good odds if we really don't think that Texas is going to win the big 12 tournament. Um, That's a great question. And there's, there's a couple of branches to go off that. I think to more immediately answer your, your first question. uh, No, it's not. If you don't think they're going to win, then it's not good value. Uh, Now I think the caveat to that is things that we don't think can happen, happen all the time. So sometimes it is worth your while. If a number is good, to bet something, even if you kind of think it's unlikely, if you personally feel like, hey, there's good value there. The caveat to that is how do you know, unless you have some sort of mathematical model, unless you are, you know, this is something you have some expertise in, how do you know what good value is? And and a lot of times that's just personal feel, or like I said, you have a a crazy Excel sheet that spits out data for you. I think what a lot of people, you mentioned that there's a lot of new people entering the gambling market for the first time and that there's a lot of uh, what we would call squares in the business. That That's not necessarily an insult. It's just a fact. Like people who are not experts are squares. They're sharps and squares. So we have a lot of new squares coming into the market. The thing I think it's most important to understand that is, is one of the most difficult things to get your head around when you come into gambling is people think that numbers and money lines and point spreads accurately reflect the difference between two teams or the difference between 10 teams vying for a conference tournament. And that's not at all what the numbers represent. They represent a marketplace kind of like you would, you know, relate to stocks and the stock market and everything. It doesn't necessarily reflect a company's true value. If you're looking at the stock market, it reflects what the fair price to buy or sell one of those stocks is. And that's that's a nuanced thing, the difference between those two thoughts. But there, it is an important difference. 
So when you look at gambling, I don't want to get like too cerebral and make people's eyes glaze over here. But when you look at prices in gambling, it's all about the marketplace. It's not necessarily about some true essence of how good or bad a team is. Baylor is a huge favorite. It's true that they're good, and that's part of the reason. But the true reason why they're a huge favorite is because everybody knows they're good and everybody wants to bet them to win. And so that drives their price up and up and up. And that's why they're such a big favorite because going against them to win the big, uh, excuse me, the big 12 tournament would be challenging. And there's not a lot of people that are willing to do that. That makes sense. I mean, it's, 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 so that makes the sense in the sense of of value. There's not as much value in Baylor because everybody wants to, to bet on Baylor. So, but if you think that say, and we'll get to Kansas here in a second, Kansas was going to win it, you know, not as many people because John Q public doesn't, Maybe watch or pay attention. Uh, maybe they, you know everyone thinks Kansas isn't any good this year, which is a common theory uh, belief. That's where you would say there's value there because you can get on a team that you legitimately think could win this and, and make significantly more money off that bet than say Baylor. Yeah, Kansas is actually a, a great team to illustrate the point I'm trying to make here. Kansas, as you mentioned at the top here, is handicapped as the second best team in the Big 12 going into this tournament. They have the second highest odds to win at plus 335. West Virginia is below them plus 700. Oklahoma State plus 800. Texas plus 800. Texas Tech plus 1500. Oklahoma plus 3000. So if if you're sort of new to this, you might look at these odds and think, okay, Kansas is the second most likely team to win this. But we know that's not true especially if you have watched Big 12 basketball coming down the stretch, you know how important McCormick has been to this team. Mm -hmm. And the fact that McCormick is not going to play, in my estimation, all but eliminates Kansas's chances of winning this tournament. And yet, they're the second most highly handicapped team in this tournament because of the brand, because of Kansas. And the brand can't rebound and can't score. But the brand does drive value in the marketplace, which is why Kansas is plus 335, but I would much rather have maybe Oklahoma State at plus 800 or Texas Tech at plus 1500 if I want to hold a ticket for the Big 12 championship title. So let's go to that standpoint. I mean, it does feel like Baylor's probably going to win this. They have been a not just the best team in the Big 12. They've been a dominant team in the Big 12. I mean, they've, they've won pretty handily. Obviously, they lost to Kansas and had a close game against Iowa State, but that was coming off of a three-week COVID pause. And they seem to have kind of gotten things rolling again since then. They, they took care of West Virginia, Oklahoma State, Texas Tech, three of, you know, three of the, the tournament teams in the Big 12. So they do feel like a dominant favorite here. As you mentioned, McCormick is out for the Big 12 tournament. I think that and look, that doesn't mean Kansas won't make the title game. It's they're they're still a good roster, but McCormick's importance to this team cannot be overstated, and and how important he has been to them turning things around in the back half of the season. So if you don't want to play on Baylor, and 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 I think we're both kind of out on Kansas. We put our projection on on Instagram after we made our picks on Sunday, and I found out about McCormick, which I don't even. Is there another team that you view as having good value because you think they have a legitimate shot to win or just because maybe the the payoff would be well enough that you'd say, okay, I, I, I think they have a shot and at where they are set, this is where I would want to put some money. I think the ticket I would want to hold is Texas Tech. Now you start with the fact that it's plus 1500, right? So you've got really strong payout there. That's such a strong payout. 
I normally wouldn't even go that low down the board because you're really starting to look at long shots when you're talking about 15 to one to win a conference tournament. But I really like the part of the bracket they're in. You know what you're getting with Chris Beard's coaching. You know what you're getting with McClung in a, in a roster that plays good defense. That's going to be extra valuable in a tournament setting. The fact they are a lower-seeded team, not to spoil something we're going to get to later, but the fact that they're a lower-seeded team, but they are favored to beat Texas, that tells me a lot about what side of that game I want. Because I, in tennis, in basketball, there are a lot of sports where I love to target Lower seeded teams, lower, uh, you know, anybody that like I mentioned tennis, when you when you have like a lower rating or you are an unseeded player in a tournament playing against a seeded player, but you're the favorite. I love those spots. I love to go after that. So Texas Tech is the sixth seed is a small favorite over the three seed Texas. I'm all in on the Red Raiders on Thursday. That is one of the strongest bets I think I have in my card for Thursday. In the semifinals, they would play the either Kansas or the winner of this Oklahoma-Iowa State game. Um, we just mentioned Kansas being, you know, a, a bit compromised right now because of the McCormick COVID situation. And then if it's, I don't think we think it's going to be Iowa State. And if it's Oklahoma, uh, I, I don't have the I don't have the head to head in front of me, but I, I would feel confident in Texas Tech's ability to beat Oklahoma especially when we've seen some late season regression from the Sooners. They won a lot of games in a row. They had a bunch of ranked wins, but a lot of them were really tight. And then you see some pretty natural regression back toward the mean in, in terms of luck and games not going their way. I like Texas Tech to come out of this bottom part of the bracket. Now, does that mean they're going to win the championship game? Of course, I have no way of answering that. It means they would need to beat Baylor or whoever comes out of that top part of the bracket. And that is obviously no easy task. But when you're talking about a team with odds that are that long, getting a 15 to one payout and what I feel is a relatively manageable uh, path to the championship game, that's a ticket that I would want to hold. Yeah. So the head to head, yeah, Texas Tech swept Oklahoma this season. Um, let's go. talk about uh, the, the odds that we have for Thursday's matchup, the, the episode going up on Thursday. The only two we have thus far recording this Wednesday night are OSU West Virginia and Texas, Texas Tech. Um, they don't have odds out for Baylor TCU yet or Kansas versus whoever they're going to be playing because obviously that game's not completed yet. As you mentioned, Texas Tech is, uh, from the numbers I'm looking at, and I'm using um, I'm using the Action Network app. Which you're a new arrival to, I believe, right? Uh, yes, I've been on there for a little bit. Uh, yes, uh, it's kind of fun. I like it. Um, they are one and a half point favorite over Texas. Texas Tech did sweep Texas in the regular season. Uh, over under set at uh, one thirty six point five, or one hundred thirty six and a half points. So you really like Texas Tech in this spot? I do. Uh, there, and there's a couple reasons why. Uh, first of all, I, I already mentioned the fact that uh, you know all, all the reasons I like Texas Tech, the lower seeded favorite and everything. Uh, there, there's this. We may have even talked about this the last time I was on your pod here. Uh, there's this idea in college basketball that it's tough to beat a team three times in one season. It's not tough. The majority of the time it happens. Majority of the time you play a team, you beat them twice, you play them the third time, you beat them a third time. So that is like math. It's not complicated. That is just an old coaching truism that's not remotely true at all. So I like that. I like the fact that it feels like Texas is, you know, maybe peaked too early. There's just a lot of things I like in that game. 
And most of the time when I'm betting something, I'm betting the number. So I start there and then sort of mushroom out to those other reasons. And I'll, I'll emphasize it one more time. The fact that I'm getting Texas Tech as a lower seated short favorite, that's a big, big turn on for me. So I am targeting that game in a big way. Thank you for just taking my whole reason for picking Texas and just flushing it right down the toilet of you can't win three <laughs> in a row because I am an avid believer. And if the team that gets swept is typically able to bounce back for one here, but we'll see what happens. I also think there's a matchup issue there, but I'm going to write with Texas. I think I have Texas picked in, in on action network and the over because 136 just seems low. I don't know. It does. Um. So for the other, other game, light. yeah, I would, uh, I mean, I've been wrong on some of these before, but it feels a little low. Like, I'm not saying they're going to go off for 145, but 138, 140 sounds about right. So, uh, the other game, of course, Oklahoma State and West Virginia, this team that split in the regular season, um, both teams winning on the road. OSU blew a 19-point lead in the first matchup, and then OSU went and beat West Virginia on the road just about a week ago without Isaac Likely and without Cade Cunningham. Um. Right now, West Virginia is a three-point favorite over under set at one fifty-one. Which uh, which which side do you like here? So uh, I, I guess we should we should add in the commentary, right? This is your squad versus my squad. That correct? that is that is accurate. It is you're an OSU guy. Is, I really don't enjoy this because I I was really don't need to hear and uh, <laughs> Bob Huggins uh, beat this team uh, in re- reaching his 900th victory as a head coach. I don't need that as a what is Oklahoma State answer. That that's that's a cool bit for for you because if they would have lost the last game, it would have been Oklahoma State was the team they beat for 900. Now you're in the same position again. Yeah, lots of fun. Uh, so that's kind of double jeopardy for you. I I have gone really back and forth on because. If you would have asked me right after the Saturday game last weekend, uh, who do you like in the West Virginia-Oklahoma State rematch, I I would have gone full fatalist. I'm all aboard the Oklahoma State train. I thought West Virginia looked so bad in that game. Like you said, Oklahoma State is down. Obviously, Cade Cunningham is the best player on the team. I don't think we have to break that down. But, I mean, likely is an important player. I think there were two more people that fouled out toward the Correct. end of that game. Yeah, they had Moncrief and Kuma. So two of their bigs fouled out late uh, with a, a decent amount of time in the second half left. Yeah, but but they still put it away. I mean, a nice mid-range two, sort of like late in the shot clock, final minute of the game, sort of, I don't want to say iced it because they still could have won, but I mean, it pretty much like sealed the deal. Really bad defense from West Virginia that game. They, they weren't boxing out. I mean, they haven't been a great classic Huggins rebounding team this year anyway, but some really poor rebounding, bad defense out of position, a bunch. It was just an odd game for them. And I didn't feel good at all. They hadn't played good against TCU 48 hours earlier. I didn't feel good about West Virginia coming out of that at all. I think I've backed off the doomsday stuff just a little bit since then, (laughs) because it was pointed out to me, Hey, they play, play four games in eight days. And my gut reaction was like, these are 21-year-old kids. If you can't play four games in eight days, how are you on scholarship? (laughs) But it's a weird year, whatever. Okay, fine. So maybe they're going to have their stuff figured out. I don't know. I still still lean Oklahoma State's way a little bit, I think. If I wanted to bet this game, I think I'd bet the over more than anything else. These are two of the higher scoring teams in the conference. Uh, West Virginia is 18-8 and on the season to the over. 
Oklahoma State is uh, 17 and seven. They have gone way north of 152, I believe, in both of the games that they played. Yes, this is a conference tournament. It's tough to bet overs in conference tournaments, but I still think the pace and the way that these te- these two teams score, uh, you got to like the over there. I would lean Oklahoma State on this game. This is a no bet for me, but I would lean Oklahoma State. And an important note about gambling, shop for your number first. Uh, you can actually get this game at very different numbers depending on what book you use. So I, uh, I host a podcast called High Motor with my friend Andrew Dowdy. It got picked up by BetMGM, so we're kind of a, a mouthpiece for, for MGM here the last few months and uh, really enjoying that work, by the way. I'm sure we'll probably plug something later. The reason I bring this up is because if you like Oklahoma State, you can find it at plus three and a half at MGM, where a lot of books have it at three right now. On the other hand, a couple of places, I think Westgate and some others have West Virginia at minus two and a half. So if you like the Mountaineer side of this, you can find shorter numbers for them. Shop around for your numbers. Give yourself the best chance to win. Yeah, that's an important part. We do our betting pod on during football season. We make our picks, but we do bet. Um against the spread and it's really important to pay attention first off shop around always shop around and and pay attention to lines because i mean it's again so the over feels right here their first matchup uh was the final total was 171 points uh, and then the rematch was 165 so at 151 i feel pretty confident in the over over has been hitting a lot this season in the big 12 we talked with them our good friend Daniel Alexander about that a, p- a couple weeks ago. Uh, he said overs are overs are winning a lot in the Big 12. It's a good bet. You're going to win a lot of money if you just bet the over every time. So that feels pretty good there. Uh, so we put our we put our bracket breakdown on the Instagram account. Now we, I have OSU winning that because there were three of us making the picks together, and I was outvoted. I have West Virginia here. It's that OSU just beat them. So I think sometimes we get a little bit too many too like reactionary to something that just occurred. And I mean, you just lost at home last game of the season to an OSU team that was down two of its best players when Bob Huggins was trying to win game 900. There just seems there feels like a certain amount of like you're not going to do that again, are you? Like you're not really if if we're going to play the whole like guys come in with chips on their shoulder blah 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 rah rah coach speak stuff like that would fit this game to me which is why I would I would favor West Virginia. I don't think West Virginia is going to win in a blowout in any fashion whatsoever, but I do think if it's another situation where we get down close, I think I would favor West Virginia in this one. And and I think I think there's definitely a play there along those lines. The idea that uh we just saw these two teams play and Oklahoma State won. And so there's probably some value on betting on the thing that didn't just happen. So I, I don't think you're totally off base there. That's actually part of the reason why it's a no play for me, because I can make really, really strong arguments kind of both ways. I would rather lean into that Texas Tech game where I, I feel more strongly about it. You don't have to bet every game. I mean, that's, that's, that's not something that's great to advocate here when we're going to break down like a ton of different things and a ton of different angles. Uh, but that is the reality is you want to pick your spots. Low volume is often better. And for me, uh, because I see both of our arguments kind of having value, that's why I'm going to stay away ultimately or just play the over. So we'll wrap up on this, Chase. Uh, you said you really like the Texas Tech being at plus 1,500. Normally you wouldn't, but mm-hmm. 
They are good. This is a good Texas Tech team. Um, their net ranking is as high as it is because Texas Tech seems to not be able to win close games, but is in every single game, it seems like. Um, and this is, you know, you just, with a team like that, you just never know. If 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 things break their way, if they get a three-game sweep of Texas, if you get a Kansas that's missing McCormick, and then you just have to win one time against Baylor, who... If you look at that last matchup between Texas Tech and Baylor, Texas Tech didn't play a bad game. Baylor just offensively was lights out in that game and and beat them. You know, so I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Is there another ticket in, outside of Baylor? There's just, you know, at minus 140, whatever. Is there another ticket here that you would you would feel good taking? Um, I mean, I might make a really small play on West Virginia. And that's more just been about historically the last couple of years they've made some really good runs in the tournament I think I think three or four years ago they made the championship game and they were really bad that year and they still somehow made it uh so it's it's kind of funny because the first five or six years they were they were in the big 12 awful tournament team it was it was like they I, it was like they flew back and forth all season and then they finally had to go to Kansas City again and it was just like man we just want to be done with all this travel and all this big 12 shit and then all of a sudden uh they became a good tournament team. Uh, I might have liked Oklahoma State like a week ago. That's probably what I would have told you a week or a week and a half ago. But they got too hot. They, they've they've a- attracted too much clout on how good they've been uh, the, the last three or four weeks of the season. And that's kind of messed their value up for me. So I think I'd rather take a West Virginia team that I think uh, is uh, – I, I, I don't know. I just, I, I guess I feel better about them, uh, which probably sounds, if you don't listen to me a ton, probably just sounds like I'm being a homer. I <laughs> famously do not like betting on West Virginia. It, it's like a, it's a happiness hedge thing. I stay away from them unless I'm very, very confident in what I'm doing. So uh, I, I would, I would say that, but it's, it's tough to handicap the futures here just because Baylor sucks up so much oxygen in the room. So mm-hmm. I, I like Texas tech because of how good that payout is. Other than that, I'd probably stay away from futures for this particular conference tournament just because of the weird dynamic and the big heavy favorite at the top. You're not going to see that at most other conferences. Chase, I always appreciate you joining the show. As you mentioned, uh, you are on the uh, High Motor Podcast, now part of BetMGM with our good friend Andrew Dowdy, who comes on the 1012 on a fairly often basis. I mean, that's the show. I I would tell you to plug something, but that feels like the plug. So (laughs) I would tell everyone, go and subscribe. It's a a really good show. I I enjoy the work you do, Goo. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, We Episodes Monday and Thursday, we're really proud of the work we do. We've been getting some really good guests lately, too. We actually had Pat Forty on this week and broke down a ton of stuff on the NCAA tournament, some coaching carousel stuff. So uh, definitely come check us out. And uh, I, I mean, I'm biased, but it's a really good podcast. You guys do a good job. Uh, Chase, as always, appreciate you joining the show today, bud. Man. So obviously, Big 12 tournament is this weekend. And so we've had our Big 12 awards for the college basketball season, player of the year, coach of the year, first team. Uh, Big 12 put theirs out on Monday. We've seen the AP put theirs out on Tuesday. And we've seen a pretty good debate form on social media uh, over who the Big 12, and we say Big 12 like it's this floating entity above everyone just like making decisions it's the coaches uh have chosen as their player of the year versus who the ap picked as their player of the year uh big 12 coaches picking Cade cunningham the freshman from oklahoma state uh, much to the chagrin i'll use that word that seems the right word uh to baylor fans meanwhile the ap picked jared butler um which has 
really gotten Baylor fans going. So it, this felt like a debate that was worth having and talking about. So I'm very happy to have Shehan Jayaraja, our good friend from Dave Campbell's, joining the show again today. Shehan, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Just, uh, you know, trying to get to the end of this, uh, trying to get to the finish line like everybody else, trust me. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm trying, I think with basketball season so far, I feel like I've been trying and able to enjoy this a little bit more than well, there's football season. It's like, let's just get to the end. Like, just get there. Just <laughs> make sure everything gets done. Now we're like, okay, I think we're okay. I think we're going to still have the tournament. You just hope your team doesn't get COVID right before it, but otherwise we can kind of enjoy this a little bit more. Yeah, it definitely has been weird. I think that football was definitely just so stressful because you knew that every single week there were like six kids getting COVID and, you know, you just knew that there were going to be all these players out that you had no idea about and everything just kind of, I mean, didn't feel real. And thankfully with basketball, obviously to some extent with the exception of Baylor, who obviously lost a couple of weeks there, uh, things have been pretty normal. There haven't been too, too many cases and too, too many uh, sort of teams not being able to to play some of their better players. So I think we've gotten more of a real college basketball season than we ever did football. Uh, Again, obviously the hope is that now that we're going into more of a bubble setting with the tournaments, uh, hopefully that kind of keeps up. I think all of us have our fingers crossed because man, we are, we are, uh, we are hungry for tournament basketball after not getting it last year. Oh, absolutely. Famished man, starving. <laughs> we are in desperate need of the nourishment that is the NCAA tournament. Um, okay, so obviously the big debate. I'm glad you're here, as as everyone should know if they've listened to Shayhan. Shayhan covers the state of Texas, both in football and in basketball, and that is the whole state. Um, so when the Big Twelve announced on Monday that Cade Cunningham was the Player of the Year in the conference, I had thought Jared Butler would win it. It made yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, I was, but I also knew going into it, it was a two-man race between Jared Butler and Cade Cunningham. That that felt like reality. If you wanted to throw a third player in, that's fine. I, I would be. In fact, I would, I would argue more strongly against a third player being up for it than I am. Than I want to do for Cade versus Jared. I think both players are, or the two best players in the conference. I was shocked that Cade got it, but I'm not as angry about it. Meanwhile, Baylor fans. Um, and and I'll let you kind of break down your thoughts. Baylor fans just, I think I'm more annoyed at Baylor fans vitriol and they're acting as though this is some like gross negligence that Jared Butler wasn't picked by the big 12 coaches. Uh, and it's wild to me to see them on, on social media now, like, ah, AP got it right. And <laughs> coaches, you don't know anything. I'm like, well, I'm sorry. When did we start siding with the media over the coach? <laughs> It's a weird thing. I get it. They're agreeing with you. I guess my first question is, what? How did? How do you feel about the Big 12's decision to pick Cade over Jared Butler? Yeah, well, I, I think the first thing that I'll say, just sort of, I, I think it is important context to remember that, look, this is the best Baylor basketball team of all time. This is probably Baylor's best chance to ever have a Big 12 player of the year. And I'm not saying that this is going to be the best team that they'll ever have, because, you know, I mean, Scott Drew's obviously doing a great job. He's recruiting at a very high level. But there is a real chance, right, that this is the best team that Baylor will ever have. And I think that that's probably a big source of the vitriol, right, is that this idea that, man, even the time that it feels like it should have been a no-brainer for Baylor people, that it wasn't, that, you know, they kind of, you know, whether you want to call it getting snubbed or whatever it was, um, you know, that he didn't win it, right? And so I think that that's sort of, if you're not Kansas, if you're not sort of one of these top-end schools that, 
obviously produces a lot of these. And I mean, really in the Big 12, it's just Kansas, right? If you're, if you're not Kansas, anytime somebody has a chance to win Big 12 Player of the Year, I, I think that that's always going to mean a whole lot more to people than it would sort of for, for a school like Kansas. It's like, oh, well, you know, maybe our guy didn't win it this year, but maybe he'll win it next year, right? We don't know if Baylor's going to have another guy like this. And, uh, or even, I mean, I think that the only All-American in program history, or at least like one of the first two teams is Jonathan Motley, right? Like he's the only guy who's ever been an All-American up until Jared Butler. So, you know, I, I think that that's a big part of it. And I think that's important context with all of it. For me, I mean, I was surprised. I, I'm not going to say, like you said, it, it was a two-man race. Uh, I'm not going to say that I was blown away, just shocked, just like, oh my God. But I will say it wasn't really on my radar that the idea that Jared Butler could not win the award, right? Because to me, I think that, you know, these are two players in Jared Butler and Cade Cunningham who both have a tremendous case for first team All-America, right? Like these are two of the best players in the country. They both, uh, I, I think them and, and Ayo Desunmu are, are going to be three of the top guys for the Bob Cousy Award as the best point guard in the country. Uh, you know, but I will say that I was surprised and a couple of reasons, right? So, so I think the biggest thing is that I know that a lot of people are going to point to sort of the workload that Cade had, right? And, and I think that that's important. I mean, that's, that's obviously a huge part of, of both of them. But like, you know, people do the sort of, well, take Cade off this team, take Jared Butler off that team, but like include both of them too, right? Like if you put them on those teams too, right? These were not comparable teams, like not remotely comparable teams. Like Baylor was, you know, however many levels ahead of what Oklahoma state was and really everybody else in the big 12 was this year. I mean, arguably, you know, anybody else uh, outside of Gonzaga in the country, I think you could argue that they were levels above. Right. And, and yes, I mean, I think that Davion Mitchell's going to have a chance to be an NBA player. I think that, you know, Macy O'Teague's going to play professionally for a long time, but you know, it's not like they had all these other guys who were, who are just like, surefire all Americans right like I mean even I, I think that Teague actually making third team all big 12 I was almost as surprised by that right that he kind of got knocked down to third team as anything right and so you know this was obviously a very good team but I, I think that for me Jared Butler is that piece that takes them from being a really good team a team that's good enough to maybe win the big 12 to being one of the top two teams in the country for, for a couple different reasons. I, I think that he is the guy who obviously, you know, you talk about just obviously leadership on court and stuff like that and, and sort of running the team. Obviously that's his role. You know, you're talking about an offense that's number three in Ken Palm. And yes, they've got all these great shooters, but the reason that they're able to create all these shots and all these good looks is because of the offense that they run. And Jared Butler's at the center of that. Um, I think for me too, you know, after last year, I, I think that I was really impressed with Jared Butler and I thought that he had a great year. The level of efficiency that he has accumulated this year as the number one option on the best team in the Big 12 and, the, you know, one of the top two teams in America is just unreal. Like, like this is like historic, historic stuff. I mean, he's shooting nearly 50% from the field. He's shooting, what, 44%, I think, from three-point range. I mean, th those are not normal those are not normal numbers and the funny thing too is is i mean i'm not going to say that i keep like a super close eye on the stats throughout the year necessarily but i was a little surprised too because i assumed that cade's like uh total numbers were going to be like sort of sort of put him on another level right i thought that he'd be more at like 
22 and six assists or something like that, right? But they really weren't. I mean, they were pretty comparable in terms of even the counting stats. And then you sort of add the efficiency stats, you add the per hundred possessions, you add obviously the advanced stats that a lot of people use, like, uh, you know, like, uh, I mean, not PER, but like uh, like box plus minus, like value of a replacement player. Like Jared Butler was two, three times ahead of Cade Cunningham in some of these stats. And I think too, that you look at the history of this award, it's typically gone to a team and a player that if they didn't win the big 12, they came really close to winning the big 12, right? Like it's usually a top two team in the big 12 that, that does this. So like last year, it's Asabuki, the year before it's Jerry Culver, it's Devontae Graham, it's Frank Mason. You go back to Buddy Heald, who again was like a national player of the year. Like that's, that's usually sort of the bar to, to win this award. And, uh, and so I think just for all those reasons combined, um, you know, it was a little surprising to me. I think you made a really good point on, it's easier to say that Cade's impact was bigger for Oklahoma State because, and, and I'm going to do this. Let me just say this real quick. I don't want to hear the, well, look what they did at West Virginia without him. <laughs> it's a one game sample size at the end of this season. Right. Dude, it doesn't, that, that argument doesn't hold water. However, I think it's easier to say, well, this team at Oklahoma State is not a four seed and might not make the tournament if they don't have Cade this year. This is a team that's obviously grown up a lot, has developed a lot, Coach Boyton has has grown this group of freshmen and sophomores into a team that they are now. But I don't think that they are sitting here not sweating out a hopeful at-large bid on Selection Sunday without Cade Cunningham. But I, I think it's easier to say, well, if that's his impact, he had a bigger impact. But with Jared Butler, I'll use, a, I'll use a football comp. Yeah. There is a bigger difference, a huge difference, between the fourth-place team in the college football playoff and the team that wins the college, the national championship. We've seen how many times that fourth place team just gets curb smacked right. time and time again. I think that's the comp for Baylor here. Baylor would still be a really good team if they didn't have Jared Butler, but they would not be number two in the country, a a, a pick a team that a lot of people are going to have winning it all in their brackets when they fill it out come Selection Sunday and the day after without Jared Butler. So I do think the impact those two players have on their team is a lot closer than we would casually talk about when when comparing in a situation like this. Yeah, and, and I think that for me, I, I think you mentioned it, like Baylor without Jared Butler, maybe still good enough to win the Big 12, right? But but they're one of the teams. They're, they're one of the teams. They, they'd be in that glut. They'd be in the, you know, obviously West Virginia being up there, Kansas being up there, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Texas. Like, I, they'd be in that glut. They wouldn't I, – I think that the most impressive thing about this Baylor team – you know, Kansas loss, notwithstanding, you know, I, I think the fact that they've been this dominant against this good of a big 12, I, I mean, this is not normal, right? Like this is not a normal thing for any team, Kansas, whoever, usually you don't have a team in a league as deep as the big 12 has been this year, just kind of run through it. Right. And I mean, even uh, I was looking up, you know, in conference play alone per hundred possessions, Baylor is 26 points better than their opponents when Jared Butler's on the court. That is not normal, right? Like that's, yes, you know, you have, uh, you have all these great players around him. You have a team that obviously, I, I think the, the bigger factor that's not even taken into account is like this is a team that's played together a lot. Uh, they're obviously older. I, I mean, all these factors matter. But I, I think that you look at what Baylor is when Jared Butler is playing basketball for them and they are 
unimpeachably better than everybody else. And I mean, again, you know, you point to that Kansas game and even the Iowa State game before that, right? Like th- those are the two games off of this crazy COVID pause, right? I-, I think that we can say if Baylor doesn't have that COVID pause, they probably go through the league undefeated. I mean, now you might have to play West Virginia twice. You know, maybe that's the sort of thing that that's, that's sort of more the benefit. But I think that I think that they probably beat Kansas if, you know, they're fully in rhythm, right? I, I think that obviously with Iowa State, you know, that's, that's never a game if, uh, if they're fully in rhythm. And so, no, I, I mean, I think that it's like you said, the gap between being awesome and being elite is pretty big. It, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to, to make up the gap between. And I guess just to go back the other side, right? Like, I, I also want to say, like Kate Cunningham, legit, you know, first team All-American side, right? Like if he if it's if he's not first team All-America, it's because he's the first guy on the second team, right? Like that's that's how good he's been this year. Um, but you know, I, I do also think that I, I guess let me ask you this. If Cade Cunningham, if Cade Cunningham were not Cade Cunningham. If he was not this guy who was hyped coming in, you know, who was the number one recruit in America, who's going to be the number one NBA draft pick. Do you think that, do you think that they would have, I guess, felt as much need to, to sort of back that up, you know, like, like if he didn't come in with sort of this name recognition with, uh, you know, both at this level and at the next level, do you think that, I I mean, I'm trying to think of like a, like a, an analog for that on another team, right? Like, well, let me, I I think, I hate doing this, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> let me let me answer your question with a question. Yeah, is some of the frustration about Cade getting it because of how hyped he was coming in, and because there's a certain part of us that is always more impressed by someone like Jared Butler, who's not doesn't have the prestige Cade Cunningham has coming in, not beating out someone like Cade Cunningham when we think he had a better season right so uh, if if he hadn't been he had just been an unknown and he came in and had this freshman season i almost think we would be more impressed by it because he wasn't the number one pick because of the impact he has had for oklahoma state it's it's funny you mentioned you know player of the year and their impact uh for the big 12 this is the fourth time an, an oklahoma state player has won player of the year uh for the big 12 tony allen aside the other guys were on teams that didn't really didn't really OSU didn't win the Big 12. They were not contenders, but their impact for Oklahoma State got them Big 12 Player of the Year. That would be James Anderson, which is still one of the wildest ones to ever happen <laughs> um, back in 2009, 2010. And then Marcus Smart, who we all was was really good as a freshman and was one of the, right. the one of the only four freshmen to win Big 12 Player of the Year. But another situation of of the impact Marcus Smart had. Those were, you know, Smart was a a big recruit, but not Kate Cunningham level. And I think him coming in as the consensus number, probably going to go number one in the draft, number two at worst, or the GMs are all morons. I think it <laughs> Fall it to also, the Bulls, man. Fall to the Bulls. I, I want him. I want to be clear. <laughs> yeah. No, no, like, look, everyone's like, ah, no one doesn't want him on their NBA team at all. But I also think that it, it kind of works counter to, it's kind of like, you know, if it is, it's the situation of one guy was highly touted Maybe he didn't live up to what we think he should have. He he. The bar becomes higher for him to deserve this award compared to a Jared Butler who did not come in with all of this preseason hype praise, and so he was awesome. Why shouldn't he get it? So I, I think that for 
for me, let, let me kind of flip that around again. So I think that you look at what Oklahoma State did this year, right? And, and actually, I'm going to go back to what you said about, obviously, there's no reason that that Oklahoma State having an awesome game and beating West Virginia should knock his case in any way, right? Like, obviously, that's that's ridiculous. I think that the, the thought process behind that, though, is that I think that a lot of people are saying, well, look how garbage Oklahoma State was last year. And the only difference this year is Cade Cunningham. And I don't think that that's also accurate. You know, no, like, it is not. It is not. Right. The, the, the comment, and I still don't know who the national writer was, who said that it was Cade Cunningham and mediocre talent. They weren't great at the beginning of the season. But again, this was a, this, this roster is like all freshmen and sophomores. Right. They have developed as the year went on and they right. showed that in the West Virginia game. So that, that this idea that, that it was Cade and a bunch of sea urchins is inaccurate. <laughs> right. They are better than that. Now, this talent, if I, if you take everyone not named Cade and compare right. it to everyone not named Jared Butler at Baylor, I still think Baylor is a better team than oh, by far. Oklahoma State's roster. By far, by far. But I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's part of it, right, is that I think that a lot of people feel like the narrative side of it is Cade Cunningham came in and turned a bad team into a good team, right? And that's somewhat true and obviously somewhat not true. Uh, I think that also, I mean, Look, I, what, I think that Oklahoma State ended up finishing fifth in the Big 12, right? Which, mm-hmm. again, everybody in that middle group is so close. Like, it doesn't really matter, right? I mean, they're... And with, and with games not getting played, it, it makes it even, you know, we had five games not played this season. It makes it even weirder. Right, right. But, you know, at the same time, it's like, man, when's the last time that a team that finished fifth place in the Big 12 produced a Big 12 player of the year? You know, Hold I mean, on. I gotta see where I gotta see where OSU finished when James Anderson was playing. <laughs> Hold on. Uh, apparently, the big you keep 12... talking. I'm gonna Google. <laughs> yeah, and it is actually. I think it is kind of interesting, um, and, and I guess almost a little oddly appropriate that uh, that Cade won the coaches' vote and and Jared won the the media vote because I do think that it is sort of, you know, when you when you plan to play these two teams, right? When you plan to play Oklahoma State, obviously, I'm sure as a coach, you were game planning to take away Cade Cunningham, right? When you are game playing against Baylor, you are just running around with your hair on fire, right? Like it's it's not like you're just going into a room and you write Jared Butler on the board and say, what do we do, right? Like you have to do everything against Baylor and you're still going to lose. Um, you know, and, and I do think that that is kind of, you know, an interesting analog. And I do think that that obviously speaks to the sort of, uh, the sort of impact that Cade had and, and all that sort of stuff. But I, you know, I, I'm, again, I, I wish that I could think of an analog right now, but, you know, I, I do wonder like for people, you know, does it feel like, okay, this really good freshman comes in and plays really well and leads, leads Oklahoma state to, you know, the a fifth place finish in the big 12 and, you know, potentially a top five uh, tournament seed. Right. Like that's really good. That's obviously, you know, a very impressive year. I think that the question becomes, is it better than Baylor being you know one of the two best teams in the country arguably the best team in the country you know posting a historic efficiency posting a historic season posting the third best offense in the entire country while also being and I mean I think that obviously I haven't even mentioned that the coaches you know offense aside for both of them the coaches felt like Jared Butler was a defensive uh, all defensive team pick too right so you're talking about a player who's elite on both sides of the ball versus you know Kate obviously being an elite elite offensive player I, I don't know. It's just interesting. I, I think that there are just so many factors for me that I take into account. And I feel like if I'm taking 10 factors into account, right? Like I feel like Jared Butler's winning eight of those. And, and I think that that's to me where it was a little surprising. So by the way, Oklahoma state finished seventh 
the the James Anderson that's one. That's pretty bizarre. Point. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> no, it's I'd still always go back to it. Like, I mean, I'm glad for him, but man, that's crazy. <laughs> um, look again. I, I I was shocked Butler won. If Butler had won, I I would I would be fine with it. I'm I'm not upset. Cade won, and maybe that's just my OSU fandom coming through hey man, and there's um, also absolutely nothing wrong in being excited for a guy that you love to watch winning right like that's the other thing too is, is that nobody nobody should ever apologize for i mean it's sports for goodness sake right like nobody should ever apologize for something good happening to the team that they like right i mean they just shouldn't i think that you know just to well let me let me bring it sort of full circle and ask this okay if you are voting on Big 12 Player of the Year, right, what are, I guess, the biggest factors that you're taking into account? Just just in a generic year, not, not this year specifically, but just in general. So obviously, with from a measurable standpoint, I do want to see stats. Um, if one is significantly greater than the other, that's going to give them an edge. I want to have watched the games because as much as I hate eye test, there are things that our eyes can tell us that that stats can't. Um, and what is the actual impact you have on a game? So, you know, it. Uh, so that, that matters. And then I, I hate taking team. Like, I feel like team record falls kind of down for me, the list, because you sometimes great players have a huge impact on a team that's doesn't do well and it's not necessarily their fault but i do think if you're a great player on a team and the team is significantly better record-wise because of you that should play into it so i think it's a combination of all those things i do think stats matter and but i don't just mean like how many points did you score like how efficient were you and and what did the team do when you were on the court for them was if your plus minus is is high um that that makes i love plus minus some some advanced stats i'm like Okay, you guys are trying too hard. Um, but plus minus is like, to me, the, the king of stats that I care about. Um, so I, I think plus minus matters. I think stat stat comps matter. I think shooting efficiency matters. Um, and I do think eye test to some extent matters. You know, lots of guys can put up stats on a bad team. Did, did your stats benefit that team and make them better? Or were you just able to be the best player on a bad team? So I guess I just feel like with all of the metrics that you mentioned, I feel like Jared Butler wins all of those metrics, right? Except, you know, the, the head-to-head stats, I think they're comparable, right? Like, I don't think that – if Cade was putting up, again, 22-8, and eight, right? Like, if, if Cade was putting up Trey Young numbers, I, I still – I mean, going back, I think that Trey Young was screwed more than almost any other player has ever been screwed because of the expectations he put on himself at the beginning of the season. But, like, you know, I think that we can say that Cade Cunningham's stats were not – markedly better than Jared Butler's uh you know and which I expected them to be based on sort of their their disparate usages but I guess that kind of that's kind of what it comes down to for me right is that their stats were pretty similar then you take into account all the other factors right I think that I test I would relatively say that that's a watch I think that you could watch both these guys and know that they're highly impactful players um and then you know you talk about the the on off stuff and uh, and you know I think that um, you know for for me and and I know that a lot of people who sort of are more NBA guys right like net rating is really sort of the the taken out version of a sort of the blown out version of plus minus because it sort of normalizes it for pace and all that sort of stuff right so that does it per hundred possessions right so. Again, in the Big 12, when Jared Butler was on the court, Baylor was 26 points better than their opponents, and Cade was six. And, and again, 
they're not comparable teams that we're playing with too, right? Like that's, that's obviously something we're taking into account, but that's a humongous gap, right? That's a 20 point gap per hundred possessions. And, you know, so again, it's, it's obviously important to ask how good, you know, how would these teams have been without both those guys there, but with those guys there too, again, these, these teams just weren't close. I will point out, I know I've seen all the, the, uh, Evan Maya numbers, and I, I don't mean to, to disrespect Evan Maya's numbers. I don't love them. I do like Ken Palm, and maybe that makes me a little bit biased towards Ken Palm. Butler was number one. Cade was number three in comparable stats as far as Ken, Ken Palm goes. So again, I, I my at the end of the day, I'm fine with Butler winning it. I'm fine with Cade winning it. I'm not upset either way. I understand why Baylor fans are. I think I'm more... I think it's more... They're so angry. They're <laughs> so angry. And they and I and I get it. Baylor's never had Baylor has never had a Big 12 player of the year in men's basketball. Yeah. Since the conference started. Uh Kansas has the most. Oklahoma State now has the second most at four. Kansas has ten. So, you know, Kansas. <laughs> um and I get it. And I and I, I get that this feels like an opportunity wasted, but AP player of the year. They're both first team all Americans. Um it was sure would be fun if we got to watch full-strength, healthy Oklahoma State and full-strength, healthy Baylor go for a full game with no one getting hurt here in the Big 12 tournament. My fingers are crossed for that. that would, <laughs> I think we all I think we all need that. I think yeah. that would... Uh, and and watch a little Cade versus Jared <laughs> Butler because I think that would, that would be fun. Yeah, that would it, be a uh, fun thing to see. I, I will say it is actually funny looking back now because uh, you mentioned, um, you know, 2010, obviously James Anderson wins uh, for Oklahoma State Player of the Year. That's the year that Baylor goes to the Elite Eight, right? Like, they don't even have an all-Big 12 first team guy. And then in 2012, you know, Thomas Robinson wins. I think, obviously, that's fully deserved. But that's another year that they get – that they're the best team, uh, you know, one of the best teams in the country, right? They're the second-best team in the Big 12 that year. And they, they don't produce them, right? So I think that that's one of the big things, right, is that this felt like such a no-brainer in so many ways to, to just, like you said, to pick Jared Butler. So, look, if you are not – Kansas in uh, in basket in Big Twelve basketball, or if you are not Oklahoma or or really Texas in uh, in Big Twelve football, I think that any of those other eight teams or seven teams or whatever, you're always going to be a little uh, a little on edge, right? Because yeah. you you know that your success is so tenuous, right? I mean, I'm the opportunities to... do not come along nearly as often, and when right. they, when when you don't get to take advantage of them, it's frustrating. And, right? and I think uh, you know, I, I, I'm sure that on the football side, right, people in Stillwater still talking about uh, whether the field goal was good, and I'm sure you know, in Waco, people are still saying if Bryce Petty doesn't slip, what happens, right? Like these are the sort of things that that go on forever when you aren't one of those teams that expect to be there, right? He's throwing missed field goals. <laughs> hey, well, I, I, we've, I, been, we've been I, so cordial at this point. I, I threw, I threw in the slip that happened in Stillwater too. <laughs> oh, I remember, I remember. Uh, uh, I, you know, it's, it's, it's. This is all just a Scott Drew conspiracy. That's <laughs> clearly the Big Twelve just loves Oklahoma State and hates Scott Drew. That's all I'm saying. Which is why Scott Drew won Coach of the Year. Of but course, yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Shayhan, this has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you joining us today, man. I know you have a lot going on. I know there's a lot going on. Dave Campbell, this is a busy time of the year for you guys. Um, what you got cooking and where can everybody find it? Yeah, so we are fully into magazine season. So that's going to be our biggest priority for the next couple of months. Uh, if, if you are not already, please become a subscriber at slash subscribe. If you live in the state of Texas, you can also uh, 
whenever the magazine comes out, usually in July, you'll be able to get it at most grocery stores, Walmart, HBO, all those. Um, but if you are out of state, uh, being a subscriber is the easiest way to get the magazine mails directly to you. Uh, and then other than that, uh, I mean, I'm working on a couple other projects independent of the magazine. Last week, I wrote sort of a story on uh, on guys who are coming back, or, or I guess guys who had the option to come back for that fifth or sixth year of eligibility, and kind of how they made that decision and, and the factors that kind of went into that so that's on tightfootball.com so make sure to check that out oh yeah i gotta read that that's exciting <laughs> um this all this super senior stuff is, is it's, wild it's crazy me. i mean it's yes. i expected you, you know that's that's the thing right it's like i didn't necessarily think of it from the perspective because i i tried to structure it in three acts right so i i did it the guys who had the extra year and decided to come back i wrote about seth collins at texas tech about that uh i wrote about guys who got the extra year and decided to use that as a grad transfer year. So I wrote about Blaze Aldridge, who's now going to Missouri uh, from Rice. And then I wrote about guys who decided it was time. So I, I talked to Sam Ellinger briefly, and then I wrote about actually this player at UTEP uh, who kind of just decided, I mean, I've been here too long. I need to start earning some money. So, you know, it, it was a lot of fun to put together. It's, I, I think that I'll be keeping a close eye on just how these rosters are affected by that. I, I included a, a quote from Matt Walls where he's just like, I, you know, you're basically guessing on which of these underclassmen kids are going to come back next year when you're trying to put a class together. So I think it's going to be one of the defining stories of the next year or two. So, uh, so yeah, I, I think that I did a pretty good job on that. So check it out at sexpeople.com. I look forward to the 30 for 30 here in about three to four years from ESPN. That, that <laughs> is about an eight part mini series because it's the only way you're going to, to effectively recount everything that's about to happen. <laughs> extra year eligibility. No question. Shayhan, always a pleasure, man. Uh, keep up the good work, and we will talk to you again soon. Thanks so much for having me. Phillips Slavin of the 1012 Podcast here. Have you been listening to this show for a while and thought, you know, if that guy can do this, then so can I? Well, you're, you're probably right, and it's worth giving a shot. The one question you're going to ask yourself is, how do I get my podcast out for everyone to listen to on iTunes, on Spotify? Well, you're going to need a hosting site, and if I may make a suggestion go with Anchor. It's easy and it's free, which is great for podcast hobbyists uh, who aren't exactly expecting this to make a lot of income, especially starting out. Anchor is fantastic. Anchor by Spotify is the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need in one place. It has the tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And when hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your show on listening platforms like we mentioned Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And again, it is totally free. It's fantastic. It is what we use. And if it's what we use, it's what we're going to suggest to others. So download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Again, that is the Anchor app or anchor.fm to get started with your podcast. So for Big 12 football, the biggest storyline is, of course, what's going on at the University of Kansas. Les Miles is out, um, according to the press release from Kansas, because he didn't win enough on the football field. But we all know why he's really gone from the University of Kansas um, and why they were able to talk him down from the amount he was actually owed to about a $2 million buyout. We've heard the Jeff Long press conference. If you hadn't, you should go and do so. It's got some some doozies of comments um, that we will probably get to at some point here at some order. Um, For today, though, we are not here to do the, we each have a list of possible coaching candidates that Kansas should go after. 
There are 100 plus articles about that. Everyone's playing their lists. You know all the names that are on it. There's nothing that we can add to that conversation, really. We will probably have some names we mention at the end, but that's not what this conversation is here for. Uh, Today, the conversation that we are having with our two guests is about how do you fix Kansas football. Uh, So joining us, Andy Mitz, as he always does on Mondays, joining us because the Kansas Jayhawks are his bread and butter, uh, and our good friend Parker Fleming of Purple Theory, both the podcast and the newsletter. Guys, how are we doing? Doing great. Doing quite well. Thanks for having me on, Philip. Always fun. Parker, I appreciate you taking some time from wherever it is in the mountains you've uh, warded yourself off. You know, time time moves a little differently here in location redacted, and so it's not uh, no no trouble at all. I appreciate appreciate that, Andy, coming us from the the I don't know whatever you call your office, I'd like the Jayhawk Manor. What is there's the flag back there? I don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 just my house. I work from home now, so it's nice and convenient to be able to do that. So oh, that is nice. That is nice. Um, okay, so. Look, Kansas football has been mired in a honestly I don't I don't know good adjectives to use to describe how bad Kansas football has been for the past past 11 seasons. Um basically ever since Mark Mangino was fired back in 2009 because he was or resigned is more proper term uh for accusations of being verbally abusive to his players. Kansas has gone through four I guess we could say five, technically, uh, head coaches in that time since then. Turner Gill, Charlie Wise, Clint Bowen, David Beatty, and now Les Miles. And none of them have been able to successfully fix what's wrong at Kansas. Well, I guess you could say that two of them might be to blame, and uh, two more subsequently have not been able to turn it around. Kansas sits here at a crossroads with an AD that most people think they should probably fire uh, with the job of finding a new football coach. And like I said, I don't. we'll get into names in a bit. But I think where we really need to start with here is Andy looking at where things are for Kansas football right now. We, we've we've heard when Beatty took over that this was a program whose scholarship count was in the low 60s, uh, which is not good. For people to understand, 85 scholarship limit, most teams try to stick around that 85. Having something in the 60s is part of why Kansas can't win football games. You You can't field a competitive roster when you your two deep is filled with walk-ons and guys that shouldn't be starting for FCS programs. Where is the program now as far as roster and as far as just the football program in general compared to where it was any of the time since Turner Gale took over in 2010? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess really the best way to talk about this actually is kind of starting back there and talking about what led to where they're at here. Because really, first of all, the first thing I'll say is, you can actually trace what is going on with Kansas here, not to solely the head coaches, but actually to actions taken by incompetent athletic directors. The very first move of that being Lou Perkins having a vendetta against Mangino. And yes, I'm not, I'm not debating whether Mangino was verbally abusive to players. Um, I'm not, I'm not excusing maybe some of the things that he potentially said, but the kind of allegations that were being thrown out when Mangino got fired were not nearly as egregious as they were trumped up to be by Lou Perkins because Lou Perkins and Mark Mangino actually had an internal feud for a really, really long time. Lou Perkins was looking for an excuse to get rid of him. And so the combination of the team tanking at the end of that particular season, having a lot of issues there and this, you know, this, those, those allegations coming out gave Lou Perkins the perfect excuse to get rid of a guy that he was having problems with. 
Um, then he went and hired Turner Gill, who honestly was not prepared for what it was that he needed to do. Did not really have control of his program. Um, that was a honestly a very bad hire at the time. There was a lot of people that criticized it, a lot of people that were upset about it. And it turns out they were all right because Turner Gill was not prepared to do what he needed to do. So that I actually chalked that up to the athletic director making a move there. Then the hiring of Charlie Weiss was absolutely an abomination. It was absolutely horrible. It was a guy trying to make a big name hire for the sake of making a big name hire. And really, I think what it came down to is that's where we started to see scholarship issues for the Jayhawks because Charlie Weiss was one, not only concerned with, well, he, he wanted to do everything he could to win and did that by getting a ton of junior college. I, I believe there was one, one year we actually had like 19 junior college recruits and six high school players, which is absolutely unsustainable. But to add to that, he dismissed players in droves from that program. So by the time Charlie Weiss left, he had four, uh, four David Beatty coming in. There were 35 scholarship players available in the spring. So after everybody graduated, there was 35 scholarship players. That's what David Beatty had to work with. David Beatty was hired with the understanding that his role wasn't necessarily to win, wasn't to do any of that. It was to recruit guys, to get them back to scholarship limits. And if you win, that's a nice bonus. So what ended up happening was Shan Zinger saw him get that upset win against Texas, not accounting for the fact that his, you know, his, his recruiting classes were absolutely abysmal and said, Hey, I'm going to give you a big, long extension. And then it soured pretty quickly because people got their hopes up because they thought that David Beatty was getting it turned around, was going to win a whole lot quicker. So it was, it was a combination of not setting expectations correctly. Um, you know, giving him a huge contract extension, which made a whole bunch of people think that, Hey, things are turning around really quick. We're going to start seeing a whole bunch of wins, but ignoring the fact that David Beatty's recruiting was absolutely atrocious. When David Beatty got fired, he had one recruit who had committed. That is it. When David Beatty left and Les Miles came on that spring, they had, after everybody graduated, they had 36 scholarship players. So Les Miles started in the exact same scholarship hole that David Beatty inherited. And so like, I, I hear a whole lot of people talking about how, you know, Kansas jumped off of David Beatty early. He was getting things turned around and it never really sat well with me because he wasn't getting things done on the field. He wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing with recruiting. He went right back to getting Juco players because he was obsessed with winning at the end of his tenure to try to you know, hold off getting axed at that point. The only thing that Les Miles has brought in to do, and, and we can, you know, talk about what he did at LSU and why he had to get fired. And, and I do agree that that is the right move. We, we actually talked about it here previously, but Les Miles has brought in, you know, to do one thing to, to, to start. Well, two things. One, to bring excitement back to the program, which happens when you have a national championship winning coach, you know, immediately the whole mood around the Kansas football program changed. A lot of people were excited. A lot of people were buying in. And the only other thing that he absolutely had to do was get recruiting turnaround, which he's done. You know, he, he actually did that. The, the recruiting classes have continued to get better. If you actually look at their scholarship si situation, assuming they don't have a whole bunch of people leave from, you know, this coaching change and they get a full 22 player class that they're allowed to get in the next recruiting cycle, they will be back at full scholarships. And so like the fact that he has gotten that by only recruiting high school players, Les Miles did exactly what he was hired to do. Obviously with all the allegations coming out, you couldn't keep him. And, you know, it, it was it was definitely right that he got fired. But if you're looking specifically at what he was supposed to do, you know, he actually did it. The issue here, obviously, is that Jeff Long didn't do his due diligence, didn't do what he needed to do, was not was not anywhere near kind of the the way that he needed to be as an athletic director to make sure that this wasn't going to be an issue for them. 
Um, and I'm like, that's really where we're at at this point. It's not necessarily so much that coaches have been horrible, which I'm not saying that they haven't been bad, but Les Miles did what he was supposed to do. But we've seen absolutely atrocious decision-making by the athletic directors at the school. And like, that's what needs to be fixed in order for Kansas to take the next step forward. Yeah, I've, I've heard some conversation on the national podcast pointing out, and look, I don't, if you come at it from that angle of Les Miles was hired to recruit players and get them in, that was his job, and that's what he did. And I've seen a lot of people criticizing like they didn't really have an identity, and they didn't from a playing standpoint. Um, from an offensive standpoint, no, it kept changing on a constant basis. Um, and and pointing out the wins and losses, and I kept thinking it was never really supposed to be about the wins and losses at Kansas. You can't worry right. about wins and losses until you have an adequate roster. So people pointing out wins and losses was also considering what he got fired for, completely missing the point on everything related to Les Miles in the University of Kansas. So I, I do think he has done the job he was supposed to do, but I also agree with the point of Les Miles was, and then we'll talk about Jeff Long's MO as far as it comes to hiring coaches. He was just brought in to be Les Miles, and that did kind of its job, but I, I'm not sure how much of a great plan that was as far as trying to get the football program on on the right track beyond fixing the scholarship issues. Uh, Parker, we've had you on mute for a little while. Why don't you jump in here? I, I'm really curious, you know, from, from someone who's not in and around Kansas, what, what were your thoughts on the job that Les did at Kansas in his brief time there? So I actually, as recently as last fall, I mean, obviously given all the nonsense we know now, uh, we don't, we didn't know it then, but, but kind of the, the idea of Les Miles again, like, you can't overstate David Beatty. And I, I think that's my favorite big 12 media day story is just David Beatty looking at me and saying, Hey, I had 30 something guys when I got here and seven of them walked out the door when I introduced myself. Um, and you just, you can't win, uh, not from a standpoint of what you're putting on the field, but uh, not only from a standpoint of what you're putting on the field, but also from a standpoint of like practice, you're not getting better practicing against um, PWO guys. Like you've got to have uh, almost a two deep, of actual college athletes um, that you can develop and practice. So like that is, that is just really, really hard. And um, Kansas added more offers. Kansas got some talent. Kansas got even some guys who, who probably wouldn't, wouldn't have stayed there anyway, that the four-star last fall that committed, um, but, but, but got some excitement about the recruiting and kind of trending in the right direction. And so like, again, aside from this, you're like, eh, maybe this would have translated to winning a little bit. Um, they, they realistically should have lost to what was that Illinois state last year too, in 2019. Um, and so I, I think we look at it programmatically, the less miles thing wasn't terrible uh, in terms of let's hire somebody that's going to fill the roster. Now, should Jeff Long have hired his friend who'd been out of coaching and clearly wants a career in media? Should he have done a little more diligence at LSU? It is time at LSU. I mean, you know, you know, we can talk about all that, but I think the biggest thing here now is, is that, um, Fixing Kansas involves fixing the roster, um, but not just fixing the roster and let's get guys in, in saying we need to have a sure identity to build a foundation. Um, and uh, much, much like uh, much like Jesus said to Peter on this rock, I'll build my church. Uh, whoever's coaching at Kansas needs to say on on the trenches, I will build this this program. Um, since 2010, Kansas has had two linemen drafted, one in the fifth round, one in the sixth round. Um Philip, because I'm sure Andy can. Philip, can you name me a Kansas lineman? Recent history, open end. Oh yeah, uh, was the one draft. Uh, uh, 
No, you can't. Like, that's fine. Yeah, I mean, you can probably I, I know who I'm trying to say. No, yeah. I can't remember his but, name. Yes, there was one that, um, Adenogy. He got drafted this year, 20, yeah, 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 yep. 2020 yeah. or last year. Yeah. So, I mean, there've been some talent there or whatever. Um, Kansas, the, the, the way you fix Kansas football is you say, we are going to turn the front nine. So five offense, four defense, give or take, whatever. Um, we need a two deep of competitive college athletes that we can bring in uh, and develop. And Kansas just needs to steer into, we need to be offensive line you. Uh, because when you do that, then you're, you know, three-star undiscovered Kansas recruits who are three stars because they're running the triple in Kansas high school football. Um, so those guys from Kansas City and St. Louis who got looked over, um, I think become a lot more valuable when you have, you know, line play that is that is uh, life-changing. So my, my advice for Kansas football is, um, I mean, look at how modern programs are built. Uh, Nick Saban and Kansas isn't ever going to be Alabama. That's what I'm saying. But Nick Saban, when he got to Kansas in 2007, there were two blue chip offensive linemen on his roster. He's taken 41 blue chip offensive linemen since 2007, not including the 2021 cycle. And just saying, we, we're getting dudes who are going to come in and they're going to be competitive. So blue chip offensive linemen who are uh, practicing against blue chip defensive linemen. And again, for Kansas, that goes three and four, three and maybe a couple of four stars. They're, they're getting better uh, in practice throughout the week. And then they're competitive on the weekend as well. So I think that's really where Kansas is right now is just, even if you're flipping over the roster, you're just keeping your head above water, trying to get guys in there. I think there needs to be a concerted push towards, we are going to hire um, guys who understand how to recruit and develop offensive and defensive linemen uh, at the expense of recruiting and developing skill talent for now. Yeah. I mean, I, I think to an extent they have actually made that shift that they are like the recruiting class that they had, you know, they they targeted a lot of offensive linemen, weren't necessarily able to get all of them that they wanted, but they they actually had six very, very big targets for them, got three of them, and then also got an offensive lineman transfer. So, like, they are definitely working on it. It is something that they have really been focusing on. The problem, of course, being that, you know, they they weren't really able to kind of make that push because of who they had at offensive line coach. And it's not entirely their fault that they didn't have, you know, a roster of people um, you know, that had been getting developed f during David Beatty's tenure. Like that, that was the, that was the hallmark of what David Beatty had is that he recruited running backs and wide receivers. And that was it. He wasn't really worried too much about defensive backs. He wasn't worried about linebackers. He wasn't worried about linemen at all. Like he was really big on wide receivers and running backs. The problem being, of course, that he did absolutely nothing to develop any of the guys that he had on staff or on, on the roster. And, and so like, Les Miles has done I th or did everything that he possibly could, I think, at that point to generate excitement, to actually get guys that are Big 12 caliber type offensive linemen onto the roster. And but then, you know, they're all extremely young. You have to develop them. They've been working on that. They actually have quite a few guys that, that, that are coming up this next year that have been developing for a while. You know, uh, some of the freshmen that they had playing at the end of last season, I thought had developed quite a bit over the course of that season. They're expected to step up pretty big this next year, supplemented by all the new guys they have coming in. Like the expectation is that they now have a base of talent at the position and they just need to go ahead and actually go ahead and get those guys developed. They were on the way to do that. Unfortunately, now you don't know what's going to happen with all of this turnover. And and again, I'm not saying that Les Miles should have stayed um, like honestly, the biggest the biggest problem I have with the Les Miles hire isn't the fact that he came. It's the, you know, kind of how that actually happened. And so if, if you're if you're taking how he got here and whether all the stuff that you should have done, you know, before he got here wasn't done, like get rid of all of that for just a second and say that Les Miles, while he was here, did exactly what he needed to do, 
was putting the, the program on the trajectory that it needed to be to get better in the next few years. The expectation was it was going to be at least a five-year rebuilding process because you had to replenish the talent level that was on the roster, exactly like Parker's talking about, and you had to give them time to actually get those guys up and continue to use that excitement to get better and better players on the roster. You know, they need to continue that still. And, and you know, but obviously now, like you can look back and say the hiring of Les Miles was a mistake when you look at the totality of the circumstances, but from just a football perspective, what they did there was the right move. You needed a guy that could generate that excitement because that was the biggest issue that David Beatty had. You know, him and Les were in the exact same situation scholarship-wise. The big difference was David Beatty could not recruit. Les Miles could recruit from the exact same situation. And that's really what it came down to. So, like, what they went after in a Les Miles-type guy was what they needed to do. Obviously, the actual person that they picked it, it was now, in hindsight, not the correct person to actually go after. You know, we, we talk about recruiting a lot. And look, Kansas, the state of Kansas, and, and when we talked about um, job rankings with Braden Gall on last week's show, he had the Kansas schools at ninth and 10th, just based on proximity to talent, right? The state of Kansas isn't producing a whole lot of, of what we consider great college football players. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't good ones. There's not diamonds in the rough. But I understand that, you know, it's not Texas, it's not Florida, it's not Alabama. But, you know, it's, it is interesting to me from a recruiting standpoint. There there are players in the state of Kansas who are solid players who go on and, and succeed at other Power 5 schools. But if you go and look at Kansas' recruiting, if you go from twenty the class of 2021 back to 2015, 2018 they had four of the top 10 players. The most they had another year was one. I It's, it's strange to me... And I get Kansas isn't like good at football, and that doesn't really help them any. How much do you guys think that part of whatever the philosophy needs to be, specifically focusing on offensive, defensive line, sure, but the fact that you're not at least getting the guys in the state of Kansas and the guys in the Kansas City area, whether they're top-ranked players or just those diamonds in the rough, that the Kansas isn't able to bring any of these guys in their own backyard in is really hurting Kansas. Oh, most definitely. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things, again, going back to when David Beatty was here, his focus was on the state of Texas. He sold out to get as many guys from Texas as he possibly could. And he ignored most of the guys that were in Kansas because he didn't think that they were, you know, were essentially the, the caliber of player that he needed. He abandoned the entire idea of a preferred walk-on program. And so, like, that's where Kansas really had the most issues was that they didn't have bodies for camp. They didn't have everything that they needed, and they weren't based in the area like they were supposed to be. Les Miles came in. The first thing he did was call the number one recruit in Kansas City, called him personally, and got him on board, got got him to flip from where he was originally going to go. That guy actually wasn't able to actually sign because of academic issues, ended up going up to Miami, um, Miami of Ohio. But, but like he made a concerted effort to find players in the state of Kansas to reestablish the preferred walk-on program, to really do everything that he possibly could to say that this is a Kansas program that is going to be based in the state of Kansas. And then we're going to pull people from other from elsewhere to supplement what we're able to get from here. And so he really embraced the identity of a Kansas program and, you know, getting guys from the area that, that have that attachment to the university because they grew up in the area that I think any of these places that isn't, you know, like Alabama or Oklahoma or Texas that are pulling nationally, like you have to be able to pull a good portion of the, the best guys from your area 
and then also be able to kind of fill out the bottom of your roster with other guys that are invested in the program so that they're going to stick around and develop or help to develop the other guys on your roster that are actually playing. Les did a really good job of that. They need to carry that forward. And I mean, if they get away from that again, that's going to be another sign that they're not, you know, building the foundation that they need. It's, it's all about building this foundation and building now on top of the foundation that's been laid. And I think I'm, I think I'm agnostic about that, Andy. I think that, I, I think that I could certainly agree that if, if, if you're offering to Kansas guys and you're missing, that's a problem. Um, but, but I don't, I don't think talent is necessarily distributed in such a way that a place that's not uh, Florida, Texas, California, or even, I, I don't, I don't think here, here, here's where I was going with this. I don't think Kansas is Rutgers, right? I don't think Kansas has to say if we lock down or have the luxury of saying like Rutgers does, if we lock down our state, we're going to be real good, um, which is true of, of, of Rutgers, New Jersey. If you, if you kept all the top talent in New Jersey, you would be a competitive football team from a talent standpoint, Kansas. I don't know year in year out. That's true. So certainly I think you don't want to miss on recruits in your backyard for sure. Um, but, I, but I do think that like there, there is some strategy in, Hey, I'm going to miss on the first tier guys in Kansas right now, the four and five stars. I would rather try and go get some Texas three stars who have been in these big programs and around these four and five star guys in high school and potentially try and fill that out um, as opposed to, hey, I'm going to take a Kansas three star who's been, you know, running the triple in at a high school uh, outside of Salina or something, you know, uh, not to not to disparage the good people of Salina, just to say like that, that I think is is strategic. And so I don't know that the home versus national recruiting is necessarily that much of a, a big deal as as much as it is. Kansas, they can't, they can't miss on big no. guys for sure. I don't know if it's volume, but it's, but it's, but at no, the top. but, but I think what, what I'm saying here is schools like Nebraska or schools like, you know, Iowa state and Iowa, they are really big on, you know, yes, they still recruit the high level guys with scholarships. They still recruit outside of their area with scholarships to fill out the roster. But what Kansas wasn't doing previously, and they are doing now is those guys that, you know, their only scholarship offers are at places like, um, you know, well, like, like Miami, Ohio, like all of these like Mac schools or things like that, at least giving them preferred walk-on offers and things like give them the opportunity to use the connection they have to the Kansas program to decide that, Hey, I'm not going to get a scholarship, but I'll get an opportunity to stay close to home, be involved with a program that I've been following since I was a little kid, you know, and, and make a difference here and kind of help build that foundation, which then could potentially turn into a scholarship if you develop well enough and you actually play. Kansas didn't do that under David Beatty. And that's what like Nebraska did for a really long time. You know, Iowa, Iowa state did is they made sure that the guys that were at home knew that they were wanted at home, even if they didn't have a scholarship available for them. And so they would get a decent amount of kind of filler talent at the bottom of their roster without having to spend any scholarships. Kansas was focused so much on trying to fill out their scholarship limits that they completely ignored the fact that there was a bunch of guys that probably would be willing to come to the school without having to take up a scholarship. And that's why they had a roster that had absolutely no talent was completely unfilled was because they were not taking advantage of the free guys that they had at home that would be willing to come and pay their own way to be able to go to school. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, that makes sense. And, and again, there is, there is, I don't think there is an optimal um, there. It just kind of, I, I think the biggest thing for Kansas is, that they have been, I mean, you're right. Les Miles got a couple of linemen, but also they have like six guys who are unrated or walk-ons as linemen. And again, that's, a, that's an artifact of where David Beatty was and kind of, you know, history's path to pin. I'm there with you. But like, I think, I think you've got to be 
mostly concerned about your your specific identity and that identity being smart. And then and then we can get into you know like the hair splitting of of is is national more important than home? Yada yada. Like I think that's second order, and I think there's some merit in that. I- I do think, though, that there's an issue of you, you, you can't really set an identity if you don't have enough players to really do something that is successful, because if you hammer home an identity that doesn't work because you don't have the, the players for it and you're continually recruiting the guys like th- there's also a problem with whiplashing back and forth from one year to the next with completely different identities based off the guys you have. So if you don't have the guys to create an identity it, it, in, in a lot of cases, it's almost better to not have one starting, you know, and work with the guys that you have focus on developing those guys and trying a bunch of things to see what actually starts working and then develop your identity as you go, you know, from that point forward, Kansas was at the point where they didn't have enough guys that were talented enough, didn't have the base and the foundation they needed to figure out what they wanted their identity to be. So if less, you know, we actually saw this when less had, had less caning here, they tried to start with the identity and then move forward and quickly found out they didn't have the players that were set up for the identity that they wanted. So when they went to Brent Dearman, what he did was change that to let's take what we have and see what we can find that will work and then try to build our identity on that and continue with recruiting. Obviously, it didn't go very well this last year under Brent Dearman, but I think a lot of that was kind of what you were talking about, not having lines at all like that. That was the big issue there. And so no matter what identity they tried to have, not having an offensive line that can stop anybody for more than two seconds means that no matter what your identity is, it's not going to work. And so like that's where they were at that you, you can talk all you want about them not having an identity, but if you don't have players, then it doesn't matter what your identity is. It's just going to look bad. So when it comes to Kansas, I think for the last five so years or so, it, it feels like the identity the national media wants Kansas to have is the triple option. It's, the, it's, it's almost become the only talking point with Kansas. They should just go triple. They should just go triple. They should just go triple to be different. And I understand the idea of being different as opposed to just trying to do what everyone else is doing with lesser talent than what everybody else has. But I don't think different has to mean, oh, okay, well, we're going to stop selling sandwiches and and start selling shoes because, you know, no one wants to eat our sandwiches. Maybe they'll eat our shoes. Like, I'm curious from you guys' standpoint, Andy, because I think you and I differ on this opinion. I'm, I don't buy into the triple option stuff. A, I think, forget the fact that it's a hard sell. Because once you divert to triple options, you're seeing with Georgia Tech, if you 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 become a triple option program, um, you kind of become devoted to that idea, or you're going to set yourself back even further trying to come back away from it. So I'm not sure I buy going full blown Army just because Army almost knocked off Oklahoma once and knocked off Michigan once. Yada 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 yada. I am curious from both of you guys' perspectives. Triple option or it, the idea, at least, of Kansas finding a way to differentiate itself um, to counter the fact that you're never going to be on the talent level, most likely, with with Oklahoma's and Texas's and those schools. What do you think is the option as far as if you want to have an offensive identity, what kind of direction should they look in to set themselves up for success? I am agnostic about the triple for a couple of reasons. I think that it, um, if your problem is roster, is a roster like Kansas has, um, I, I think the triple in the long run might do more harm than good, um, even if it does do some short run good. You know, some people arguing on Twitter, like, hey, it's going to, you know, you might win four to six games with the triple within five years. And I think if you're thinking about five year success at Kansas instead of 10 year success, you're, um, you're probably going to doom yourself to not being successful in five years. Um, 
And so, the, so, so, so I think that's kind of the one thing is it's, it's the, the triple option is not as weird um, as people make it out to be. It's not as weird when a conference opponent does it. Um, and I, I, you know, with modern RPO stuff, like uh, apocryphally, Gary, Gary Patterson installs a defense against the triple option the first week of camp every year. And that's kind of their, their base, just because it really helps kind of talk through, hey, what does everyone do? Um, and how do you how do you defend? What are passing off assignments that really translate to the, like the modern RPO game? And so I, I, I don't think that, especially in the conference that is so offensive, like the Big 12, that the triple is going to be uh, that big of a, a swerve. Uh, it's not 2005. Um, and, and largely the reason that like Navy does well is, um, or Army does well, you know, Army against Oklahoma. Oklahoma didn't, Oklahoma ran one practice uh, against the triple, right? They like did not prepare for it. They knew that they were vastly more talented. Wasn't, wasn't a huge deal. So I think that the, the triple isn't as big of a swerve as people think it is. It has a limited shelf life. And specifically, if we're talking about you don't have linemen, guys aren't coming to guys are not coming to play in the triple option uh, for, for like good linemen are going to go somewhere else. Cause that is not how you develop. And that is not how you get in the NFL. Um, and you could say, Hey, why don't you just find a bunch of like five, nine red asses um, like coastal Carolina has one shout out to five, nine red asses. Great guys that love that they have a chance to play football. Uh, how sustainable is that? Um, and, and does it really matter? Like, if you're playing against NFL caliber defensive lines in the big 12 week in, week out, I don't know how, again, just, just the shelf life there. So it would be so nice if it was that easy, right? How nice would it be to be like, all right, let's do it. Let's run the triple and we're going to fix things. But I, I really think that's, that's short-sighted in, in the scheme of you, you really, really, really don't need something so dramatic. You need, you need execution, not ideas per se, for Kansas to succeed. And you look at a couple teams that have had like reversals of fortune uh, of late without going to the triple that are, are more or less comparable in my mind to Kansas. Um, Baylor, Oregon State, um, both kind of on the on the up and up after to, to varying degrees after um, absolutely bottoming out. Um, I, you know, you look at some places like what Cutcliffe did at Duke, what Clawson did at Wake, even though, again, they're different, varying degrees of success. But I, I really think you can get a mind in there that can build a football program without become some kind of circus gimmick that's going to leave you in five years, one, not, not really much better off in the roster sense than you are now, and then two, having to attract another coaching hire with a triple roster. I mean, look at Jeff Collins at Georgia Tech right now. Last year, uh, he, th th they've had multiple times over the course of the season – with a good quarterback, just, just kind of give up and say, okay, we don't have the linemen to do what we want. We've got to go back to some of this triple stuff uh, until we can kind of flush this out. Uh, it really kind of hamstrings you, hamstrings you in the long run, I think, uh, because it is not, it is yeah, not I mean, anymore. So myself and then my my uh, co-host over on, on my podcast, we have been big triple option or you know, proponents back since, I would say probably about 2010. So right after Turner Gill, partly because at the time, like, Kansas roster, the, the strengths of their roster were the things that are important for the triple option. Like that was, it, it was a natural kind of shift for them to go to that at that point. And, and I mean, I still think that a lot of the proponents or a lot of the things that you need for a triple option are things that would benefit Kansas, whether that was their primary, you know, like primary offensive scheme, or if they like had it super heavy in there and are able to kind of shift to it when they needed to, just to kind of give a different look. Um, you know, the, 
the, I guess the discipline that you need to be able to run it, you know, kind of, you don't necessarily need big beasts of mind men up front. It's more about, you know, being in, in a sound location to chip guys where you need to and, and kind of getting that. And, and Kansas for the longest time had a bunch of running back, like big running backs who could run that kind of option had mobile quarterbacks who could run that kind of offense. And so it was, it was kind of a, a natural way to build on the strength that they did have, get some success, start increasing the caliber of recruit that they were getting in and then use that to springboard to something else. And, and I, I don't think any of us were ever, you know, really kind of focused on only do the triple option and that's it. Like that, that's why a guy like Jeff Munkin, you know, was always so attractive to us. Um, and, and kind of still is at this point, because while he run in, runs a triple option system right now, you know, and, and, and Philip has pointed this out on Twitter as well. He's not married to that type of system. He likes to use those concepts and he's at a place where that, that's the offense that they run. So that's what they do. But I imagine that he is going to use those sorts of concepts, you know, where it makes sense, but incorporate that into a larger kind of offense. And when he has the ability to do other things, he'll do other things. So like, I, I don't think want Kansas to go strictly to a triple option offense, but I want them to be able to use the triple option concepts with the guys that they have where it makes sense. The problem that you have right now is that triple option is kind of a bugaboo for a lot of people that if you're running the triple option, you're not doing anything else. And that's not the case. There's a lot of things, like you said, with the RPOs, like that is very, very similar. Or, or I should say it's it's kind of borrowing from the triple option offense and putting it into a more traditional style offense. And that's what Kansas needs to get to, but basing it in a triple option and then adding a bunch of additional stuff to it was a good way for Kansas to get out of where they were and start to get more. Um, like I still think that there's a lot of good triple option based coaches that could be successful at Kansas. And it would be enough, I think, of a novelty at this point that even if it doesn't necessarily lead to immediate success just because of Kansas roster issues, it's it's enough of a difference that it brings some excitement. It kind of makes sure that people are engaged and that discipline that comes along with it for it to be any have any kind of success is something that this Kansas team desperately needs. And so, like, I, I do agree at this point. And, I mean, I, I'm honestly a little bit upset because all the national writers are jumping on this. Oh, you got to hire a triple option coach. Well, we've been talking about this for over 10 years as something that would be super successful. And now it's kind of the in vogue Kansas should just be weird and go completely triple option, which isn't what we actually ever were looking for. But I, I do think there is some merit to going towards a triple option based system, as long as it's not entirely triple option. I think this makes sense is why you hear Monk and name so much. Cause again, he's not married to triple option. It's like going to become the head coach at Wisconsin. You're going to coach Wisconsin football at army. You're going to, you're not going to show up and be like, we're going to go to, to the spread. No, you're, you're going to run this here at army. That's why you were, that's what we do here. Um, but, you know, everyone's called, I've seen two people name Willie Fritz as a possible coach. Well, he runs the triple option. No, he has elements. I think that's a perfect example of what Andy talks about. There's elements in the triple option. He's coached triple option uh, before. But Willie Fritz, if you really go look at his different head coaching stops, has coached a variety of different offenses um, to whatever best fits. Um, honestly, I would just <laughs> just go steal Jamie Chadwell's offense and bring it in. You're just not going to get Jamie Chadwell because he's going to get an SEC job and not come to Kansas. Um, to that effect... Let's talk about what the next steps are. And look, at the moment, Jeff Long is apparently going to be making this decision with the help of a search firm. Uh, sure, we'll see if this is what really unfolds. Bef I don't. Before we get to candidates, if you guys want to name names or not, um, the proposal of does Kansas just take a interim for this season? kind of punt on 2021, 
replace Jeff Long first, and then use the time to find an appropriate replacement as a football coach? Or do we think they should let Jeff Long, if that's really who's doing it, because otherwise it's a search firm, you don't let such search firms pick your head coach, and your school president's not going to pick your head coach, so somebody's got to do it. Or do you think so? Do you think they should hire a new head coach that they want to put in place right now? Yeah, I think you've got to hire somebody just because of early signing day. If you go through the season with an interim and then try and hire somebody at the end, um, you're looking at trying to get somebody in before early signing day, which is messy. And if you miss early signing day, you basically miss a year of recruits. Um, I just don't, I mean, from what we've seen guys that have been hired late since, since early signing day happened, they've been behind and you can't afford that. So, um, I mean, is there any inclination? I, I, again, I don't, I don't know too much about the business side of these things and where they work, but like, I, I don't think Jeff Long's going anywhere. Um, and so if whoever's making that decision about Jeff Long is, is not going to fire him right now, why are they going to fire him in December? Like that's, I think that's a dumb, dumb move. Um, so I think you've got to do it now. Um, I, I think what's most interesting about this is less who, who Kansas hires and kind of how they hire somebody. Um, you look at like Mark Stoops at Kentucky has a really interesting contract. I think at Kansas, it would really do you well to come up with some kind of clear objectives for moderate success um, and kind of give a coach some, some lucrative incentives to hit that. Um, like you think about uh, Kansas going to a bowl would be huge. Um, is that going to happen in two years? Probably not. Is that going to happen in five years? I, I, I think it feasibly should. And so you could do something like that of like, hey, we're going to hire somebody with with a five-year contract and we're going to give them kind of incentives uh, based on just really, really moderate success that we haven't had before uh, to keep that rolling. But all that being said, um, if you don't hire a guy soonish and you wait till after early signing day, you're, you're shooting him in the foot. Yeah. My only problem with that is that I don't think anybody around the program. And, and honestly, there's quite a few people I think in the program or donors to the program have any confidence at all that Jeff Long is going to make a good hire. And, and as much as you say that, like, as much as it's being reported that a, a search firm is going to essentially be making this hire, if Jeff Long is still in the position, sir, you, you don't hire a search firm so that they can decide who your next coach is going to be. You hire a search firm so that they can come up with good options and do all the background checks and make sure, you know, that you're not going to run into a situation like you just did with Les Miles. Um, and, and then Jeff Long's going to make the decision. The problem that I have is that every coach, you know, Every football coaching hire that Jeff Long has made has ended horribly. I can't, I don't trust him to make another head coaching decision that's not going to blow up in our faces in the next two or three years. And so I would almost rather, like, I, I, I understand your point about not hiring someone in December and having to deal with early signing day, but it's also kind of one of those things. It would almost be better to hire or name an interim coach at this point now, right? And let that coach keep the recruiting classes that they have together, keep the guys that they have on the roster together now with the understanding that he may not be the long-term coach, but you know, this is the system that we're working with. This is what we're doing. And even if it affects the next recruiting class that they have, you take the time to find a good long-term hire, you know, one that you have confidence in. And yes, it might put them a little bit behind where they are right now, but you also set yourself up for long-term success. My biggest fear with this is that they're going to rush it. Jeff Long is going to do everything he can to rush a guy in to try to save his job. And we're going to end up with another bad coaching hire. 
And then we're going to be paying for it four years down the road when they finally decide to reset again. And there's been no progress made because guess what? Jeff Long's the one that hired the coach. I, I understand what you're saying. Kansas is just go ahead. Kansas just lucky Burt Bielema already got hired by Illinois. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah. No, but I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things. There actually are discussions going around and this has actually been thrown out on Twitter while we're recording this, that some of the big donors at Kansas had lots of issues with Jeff Long before all of this less mile stuff came out. They'd already had a discussion with, with chancellor Doug Gerard. Um, you know, he was very receptive to what they were saying apparently, but that no decisions have been made. It almost seems to me like Jeff Long has not been ousted because the, the, the university is in crisis mode with the head coaching, like trying to get less miles out of there. But after that press conference that, that Jeff Long had and everything that's going on, I don't know that there's a lot of confidence in what Jeff Long's going to do. So I wouldn't be surprised if like two weeks from now, Jeff Long ends up getting fired and they, you know, are looking for a new AD at that point though. I mean, like with spring practices right around the corner, you know, they've already been delayed, but they can't delay them forever. Like they have to go ahead and move forward. So they're going to have to name an interim head coach. I think whoever that interim head coach is has a very good shot at actually being the coach going into the football season, whether he's the coach the entire football season, or if, you know, halfway through the season, they end up hiring a long-term guy and bringing him in, you know, and giving him an opportunity to kind of acclimate to the team and get ready for all the recruiting and all that stuff. I could see that be that potentially being a way that they could do this, but it really is going to depend on whether they ultimately decide that they're going to let Jeff Long make another hire. I don't think that they should. I honestly don't think that they will just given kind of all the backlash that's going on right now about Jeff Long. But, you know, we won't know that, I think, for at least a couple of weeks. Yeah, it's a difficult situation. It's weird to hire a football coach and then hire an AD. You want the AD and the, to hire the coach that that relationship is there and you have a good relationship. But, man, I, I fear for how much further back it will set Kansas and that all what good Les Miles did could be undone by having to wait a whole year with an interim. Um, and yeah, But at the same time, I agree. Look, look at Jeff Long's four college football head coach hires during his time as an athletic director. He hired Dave Wanstead at Pitt, um, Bobby Petrino and Bielema at Arkansas and LS Miles at Kansas. And I don't know that any of those have really, they have all had ended poorly for one reason or another uh, to varying degrees. Parker, I, I like your contract idea. As long as I don't do anything like what Randy Etzel has at uh, UConn, where he gets 2000 every time or 2000 bucks every time UConn scores first or incentives for leading a game in tackles per loss margin or, Points scored, which is, if you've never seen Reddy Ansel's contract at UConn, I don't know why that team even plays football. Um, all right, so I know that uh, the Parker's got to get it here, and we have gone quite a quite a bit long on this one. So let's just wrap on this. Um, if if you were the athletic director at Kansas, who is the guy you would hire? I'm gonna be. Go I'm say I'm gonna be honest. I don't actually have a name in mind. Like my focus at this point would be about keeping the team that they have together because. Like I said, I think the foundation of this football team moving forward is good. You need to build on that. And so if you're going to hire someone who is going to cause, you know, 20 of your players to leave and your recruiting class to go back down to like five commits, that's a no-go for me. I don't care who it is. I don't care how good you think that he is. If you're going to handicap him by making him go back to 45 scholarship players when he walks in the door, then you're going to be in exactly the same situation that you're in now and you're not doing yourself any good. So like I, I would... I, I, I hesitate to give a name other than, you know, to throw out some, some of the guys we've been talking about, like Jeff Munkin or things like that. Like if one of those guys is going to go ahead and take it, like if, if, if you call Jeff Munkin, he says that he wants the job and he will take it next week, then I think you hire him. But short of a home run guy like that, I just have a really hard time coming up with a name that I think is the guy, you know, that would realistically take it. 
at this point that wouldn't also set the program back quite a bit because you're completely changing what the program's trying to do. I agree with the continuity. I think you've got to keep a guy like Josh Ergel at, as as the who's current recruiting coordinator and like offensive assistant head coach or sometimes he's got three or four titles but been promoted. Anything you do to, to keep that is pretty great. Um, here's my name. This is crazy. I'm going to admit this is crazy. I think this is actually really smart though. Um, my my name is Del McGee, who is uh, an assistant head coach and current run game coordinator for the University of Georgia. Um, Seems a little bit out of left field, uh, but at Kansas, your problem is not X's and O's. Your, your, your problem at Kansas is, like we said all, all the time, is, is kind of roster relationships, recruiting, and um, I'm going to use the word culture here. I think that um, uh, there, there's just not a lot of what is Kansas football, and I think somebody like Del McGee, who's been a really successful high school coach in the past, who's done really, really well networking with high school coaches in Georgia, recruiting good linemen and excellent running backs, and um, helping develop them on the field uh, into NFL draft picks. He's also been around a, a, a championship culture. Um, and I think that could just be a really good move to kind of have a, a CEO executive type who has an offensive mind and say, hey, we're going to bring you in. We're not going to pay you what we would pay uh, Munkin, for instance, or, you know, whoever, less miles, but you're going to have a really big assistant pool. And we're going to kind of make this um, younger, off the beaten path and, and a little bit more um, program driven. Uh, and I think that could really, really pay off. So that again, a little bit weird. Who knows? I, I, Del McGee wouldn't take this job. I think he, he probably wouldn't, but I think you could make an offer that he would be very interested in. Um, yeah. At the the other thing to kind of think about here, you know, and, and I don't know, given kind of some of the things that I'm looking, <laughs> I'm looking in the fact that this guy is a huge barstool sports fan. And I don't know that I necessarily like that given kind of what just happened <laughs> with, with less miles personal life. But Kevin Kelly is a high school coach in Arkansas who never punts always you know, does the onside kick quite frequently. He's also a guy who theoretically like you could, he's actually said he would take the Kansas job and pay, you know, be paid by the win. Um, he's also a guy I think that you could plug in and keep the rest of the coaching staff intact and kind of just have him there and let the, the, the train keep moving. I'm not saying I would want him specifically, but if you have a guy who is willing to accept that, at least for this year, you know, that he comes in, doesn't rock the boat, kind of acclimates to what everything's going on, acts more in an advisor slash CEO role instead of trying to remake the Jayhawks into what he thinks needs to be done. Like that is a, a good way, I think, to move forward if you want someone immediately. Like that way you can keep Urgle, you know, as recruiting court, like you can keep all of these big pieces, all of these big guys who brought in all these recruits and keep that continuity there and just have a guy there to kind of oversee it, you know, make some small changes kind of on the edges as things go. Um, maybe, you know, I like, I guess more work with the staff that's there as opposed to going and trying to remake the entire thing right up front. I'm not saying that that's like the best way to do it, but if you're going to hire someone quickly and you want to keep that continuity, that is an option that is kind of way out there that may potentially work. That is at least intriguing to me. Kevin Kelly has an excellent <laughs> PR department. Yeah, that he yes, does. He does. Um, and Kansas hiring Kevin Kelly would do one thing. Um, increase Kevin Kelly's uh, already pretty ridiculous speaker fees to go say uh, tangentially analytical, partially true things at uh, conferences where they charge undergrads $600 to go to a virtual Well, like event. I said, I, I don't um, know that I would want him specifically, yeah. but that kind of situation. No, I think, yeah, right. I think I think that one's the, the point you're making. Absolutely. Him specifically. Um, 
the reason his name popped up for that job is because his agent started calling right. people and yeah, that's, um, yeah. yeah that's well, I, I think it also helps that he had, you know, he, he basically got on the phone with Barstool Sports and got them to start pushing it. And, and so like, it's one of those things, yeah. the idea is intriguing. I just don't have another name that I could throw out there that could fill that kind of role. But if you find a guy like that, I think that that is an intriguing way to tr- potentially move forward with this. Um, which is also, I guess, part of the reason I don't actually have a name because I can't think of someone that would fit that mold that I actually would be comfortable hiring. And and the uh, the delegate from the Democratic People's Republic of Stats War feels compelled to say that uh, as personally distasteful as I find Barstool, that is um, different than Les Miles. Uh, no, 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 right, right, right. Harassing, right. Uh, I'm not. I'm not saying it's on the same <laughs> level, but honestly. Yeah, I was gonna say some of the things that he does on you know the show there and like that network does is just as disgusting. Maybe not like power trippy uh, the way that Les Miles was able to do it and didn't necessarily go as far, but but some of the things kind of behind it and the, the attitudes behind it, you could make an argument are fairly similar. So it's, it's probably it's probably true. Men are terrible. Uh, <laughs> as much as it's fun to wax poetic about you know. Barstool. Uh, I think this should wrap us up here as this has pretty much taken up a whole episode. I have no idea how I'm going to fit everything else that's supposed to go into this one. Uh, thanks again to Andy and Parker for joining us today. Of course, you can follow Andy on Twitter at AndyMitz12, M-I-T-T-S. Follow Parker at StatsOWar. And of course, subscribe yourself to the Purple Theory newsletter and check out the Purple Theory podcast, which has had Alex Kirshner on. So I would definitely give that a listen if I were you. Guys, thanks again. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Podcast Network.